This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. Who are we and who do we wish to be? These are questions that Marcus and I have been asking on many of our recent shows. Does our most recent election suggest possible answers to these questions? Or does it complicate our efforts to find an answer? Marcus and I want to explore these questions and the issues that inform them in a conversation with Dr. Chris Cooper on today's show. Marcus and I are really glad that you all have taken the time to join us again today on the Waters and Harvey Show. It's been a little while since we've had a chance to kind of get back together to record a show because we were in the election season. But Marcus, I'm glad to be back. You and I were talking about how we missed being able to have these conversations. Yeah, indeed. It's been an eventful last uh, several weeks. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited to dive into today's topic. It is, but I'm really glad to hear that even while we were off the air for a while and the show wasn't airing, um, that people were still interested in getting the show back. I've had a number of messages come to me saying, oh, we're looking for you guys. Where are you? So again, Marcus and I are really glad that you all continue to engage the show, the conversations that we're having. And like we said, it's great to be back. Again, we're still in kind of our COVID uh, restricted environments. I'm at home in my home office. Marcus is still sitting in at I'm at home, home in his home office. <laughs> now, I have to ask you this, Marcus, because you've just about come through a full semester of, uh, <laughs> of teaching online. And um, how has that been? Now, I, I haven't, you know, <sighs> although we're both at the university, I have not taught a class this semester. While I was doing an independent study with one student, uh, we have met online, but it's not the same as having a whole class uh, uh, online. Online. Yeah, what, what I would say is that um, I'm now at a point where I'm seeing um, Zoom chat boxes um, in my sleep. <laughs> you know, uh, this is my first, as I've indicated before, this is the very first time I've taught anything um, on a strictly remote basis. And so not being able to interact with students face to face physically in a brick and mortar setting has been mm -hmm. really a new pedagogical challenge for me. Um, but one that, you know, I think I've been able to to navigate um, somewhat uh, this semester, if not a bit clumsily. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I, I think there's a part of me that, you know, despite having this this remote experience and being able to spend more time at home teaching from my, my home office where all the magic happens, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, I, there's a part of me that still sort of wants to return to that to that traditional classroom setting, but who knows when that will be. So, right, right. Yeah. Now, now I have to say here, just because we like to rib each other a little bit. Now, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I have to ask because you have uh, an almost five year old son, Carter, who is my oh, godson. Yeah. Now, I want to know: Has he made an appearance on Zoom in any of your classes? You <laughs> know. And our listeners have to know that this is quite the intelligent young man. I mean, he can hold full conversations on a host of issues. So I get to talk to him from time to time. So I'm sure that uh, he can probably show you up in class if he if he appears. Oh, in yeah. And, and, and in fact, this morning, he just gave me a mini lecture on the Chilean flamingo. <laughs> um, but um, but 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 to your question, um, he, he, he is not he did not manage to make an appearance um, in the in any of my classes this semester, but that's not for want of trying. <laughs> um, so that tells me that this is this will be happening probably probably sometime next semester. And I'm in sure that as you said that if he shows up, he will steal the show. 
There you go. Well, good. We'll see what happens in the spring. (laughs) I always enjoy enjoy talking and seeing Carter. So, but Marcus, look, so here we are. You know, we're asking these questions again. Who are we? Who do we wish to be? Um, I, you know, I know we keep coming back to these questions, but what I have found uh, to be uh, that I've appreciated that these two questions have really resonated with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You've added additional questions to these, to these two questions about, is there a we? Has there ever been a we? Which I think is fundamentally important. We'll probably get to that in the conversation with Chris today. I just this morning, I took the time to read uh, an essay in the, I think it was the last month's issue of The Atlantic. The Atlantic really is just one of my favorite magazines. And this was a by the uh, professor that you and I talked about before, who's up at uh, Harvard University, Daniel Allen. And um, she wrote it in an essay called The Constitution Counted My Great-Great-Grandfather as Three-Fifths of a Free Person. Here's why I love it anyway. And it, this is an interesting essay about the Constitution, about uh, about politics and the, pop, the art of compromise, which is at the heart of politics. And so I'm curious, Marcus, when you think about it, what is politics? And, you know, on our, in our notes, we talked about this whole concept that yeah. we hear from time to time about the art of compromise. What is that? Yeah, I mean, and th- this is a fraught question. And I'm not even sure the political philosophers have ever really agreed um, uh, on, a, on a broad scale, on a single definition of, of politics. But, but when I think about this question of, of how one, one can define this idea, I think about people like Hannah Arendt, right, the political mm-hmm. philosopher um, who talks about politics, uh, not strictly in sort of abstract discursive terms, but, but as a, really as, as a very distinctive really mode of existence, a mode of, a mode of human being that is concerned with motifs such as um, what are the possibilities of democracy, mm-hmm. right? What are some mm-hmm. of the forces that militate against democracy? Um, what does it mean to, to deal with the conflict between public and private interest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's, and so forth and so on. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't know that there's any single uh, definition that we can point to and say, oh, you know, this is what politics is. What, what, what I would offer, though, is that I think that at, at the heart um, of any sort of political activity um, is a, an attempt to address power relations, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? I think power is really at the core of it. And the way that, the way that a particular group um, approaches that power you know, can can vary widely, right? For, 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 for one group, you know, their approach may be focused on a certain sense of identity, right? For another, you know, something else could be the, 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 the main motivating factor. So, you know, I think this question is, is very fraught and, and very complex. And the response to it, well, I think, vary depending upon who you ask. Right. I think that you're right. And in listening to you talk about power, it makes me go back to this essay that I read earlier today in the Atlantic uh, Allen's uh, Professor Allen's essay, where she talked about power. And one of the things that she says about our Constitution. First, let me say this. There is no perfect social order. I mean, we are, we are human beings trying to figure this out as we go along. And I think that sometimes we are looking for we're looking for our expecting perfection and we forget that this is an ongoing process an ongoing conversation and she talks about power and what she sees as the brilliant of our brilliance of our constitution in that it diffuses power 
Now, I think it gets muddled. We, we may ask Chris about uh, about that, um, how the three branches of government, you know, and I have to say this here, you know, that I think civics in, in this country, uh, you know, our understanding of, of basic civics, I think, is very much lacking in this country. But when you hear uh, U.S. senators actually saying that the three branches of government are actually the House, the Senate and the presidency, I think, you know, that that is a problem. It, it for me, I mean, you, you, the three branches of government are the judiciary, the legislative and the executive. And there's a, a, a constant tug of war between these three branches, which I think is the way that it was meant to be. But. Sometimes that that pendulum, you know, and I've said this in constitutional history classes that I've taught at the university, that sometimes I think the pendulum can swing too far in one direction. How do we find balance um, in these power relationships? So I think that that's something for us to talk about. You've heard me reference in our conversations, Marcus, and our listeners may have heard me reference from time to time. Russell Kirk, who is one of those writers that I read um, more on the conservative side. Kirk died back in 1995. But one of his books that really caught my attention was his last book, which was a collection of essays called the Politics of Prudence. And he uses this term, which I think he gets from Edmund Burke. I'm not quite sure, but he refers to politics as the art of the possible. And I've always been intrigued by that uh, by, by that kind of phrase, the art of the possible, um, and trying to understand what it means. But it, it, it really is, it requires, I think, Marcus, what it is that we essentially have set out to do through this show and the conversations that we have is to be in conversation with each other, understanding that we're not going to always get exactly our everything that it is we, mm-hmm. we want, but that there is this kind of give and take that that exist within these conversations, especially around politics. Yeah, and, and two things I would say. I mean, you know, thinking about Kirk's notion of the art of the possible, you know, I, I think about um, the fact that um, that that the art of the possible requires a political imagination, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it, it requires the the capacity the capacity to imagine the society that we want to live in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there there are two rubs involved in that. Um, one is, as you just as you just suggested, there's no way in hell that we're all gonna you know share or inhabit the same imagination, mm-hmm. right? The same sort of vision for society. And then and then secondly, and this kind of goes back to your to to an, to an earlier point you were making about the Constitution. Um, I, I think that you know the the Constitution is one thing, but it's another thing to confront the fact that the Constitution must contend with the beast. That is American capitalism. Mm-hmm. Right. So so even though the Constitution um, may have written into it um, the necessary even distribution of power, the reality is that the the, the pressures exerted upon the Constitution by American capitalism mm-hmm. often work against that. Mm-hmm. Right. So so we ha- so we tend to have power concentrated right in a, in a smaller number of persons who have managed to sort of master the American capitalist right. um, um, game, so to speak. So I, again, I, I think this is a very sort of complex um, issue, this issue of, of, of American politics um, and, and, and sort of fashioning an art of the possible, especially in this, in this era. 
Absolutely. And Marcus, yeah. you're right. I mean, opening up that door to talk about capitalism, that that is, a, you know, a, a road that we need to go down at some point, because I'm not so sure that our our country is really honest about the discussions around capitalism and its influence on American democracy. Again, I must do this. I do it in every show. I go back to Alexis de Tocqueville, <laughs> who I believe that de Tocqueville was addressing this in democracy in America and basically saying that this was one of the problems that I believe he identified with American democracy and why he believed that our version of it would be somewhat problematic for the rest of the world. So that's a conversation for us to happen. Compromise. I do want to kind of put this at the heart of this conversation that we'll have with Chris, because if politics is the art of the possible, then compromise has to be a part of that. How well do we do as a society around this issue of compromise? Is it something that is just a pipe dream that we can't attain anymore? Um, I want to ask Chris about that at some point as we talk. Marcus, you've raised the issue of democracy, capitalism's influence on our democracy. I'm reminded here again of the Atlantic. I'll go back to the Atlantic, and I think it may be just about two years ago that the Atlantic in October, this would be what we're in 2020 now, this would probably be 2018, I believe, issued a, 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 an issue of that uh, magazine was addressing the question, is democracy dying? And I think that that is an important question for us to, to consider, you know, as we as a nation, as a democracy, being seen as the leading democracy in the world, kind of as we move forward. But Marcus, again, you've raised so many interesting points here in even bringing up the issue of imagination. I'm thinking about uh, Alex, not Alexis de Tocqueville here, but Russell Kirk. I mean, Russell Kirk's autobiography that he wrote just before he, he died was called The Sword of Imagination. You know, it takes real imagination. And around these questions that we're asking about who are we and who do we wish to be, we need to really have some imagination around those two questions. Yeah, and and, and the, I think the last thing that I would say uh, before, we, before, before we move on here um, is, is that you know, a, a very square confrontation with America's political and social history, I think, forces the question that, you know, despite the fact that the United States wants to vaunt itself, wants to position itself as the quintessential paragon democracy in the world. Mm -hmm. For me, the question becomes, um, does given America's history, which um, to a large extent has been has been patently undemocratic, right? Does America have the right to claim that position to assert to assert this exemplary status vis-a-vis -vis, um, democracy and sort of being a leading democratic uh, model? And I think these questions of who are we and who are we, we wish who do we wish to be? They have to deal with that with right, that right. with that very um, difficult question. Right. And you raise history. Say. Yeah, you, Marcus, say. you're right. And I, I'm sure that our audience can see right now that we're having a good time in this conversation. <laughs> and, and I want to think here, you know, before we jump in with with, with Dr. Cooper here, you know, I, I do want to uh, do want to kind of tip our hat to our friends out at Colton Groom because we had the opportunity to go out and talk with them uh, here uh, here uh, not too long ago to kind of have to do a live version of the show. And we talked about these very questions and got some really good feedback from the members of that uh, of their team there, uh, which you really, Marcus, are it, it addressed many of the issues that you're raising here today. Uh, but um, 
We want to um, just remind you again that this is the Waters and Harvey show here in Asheville, North Carolina, to thank you all for being in this conversation with us. We have with us Dr. Chris Cooper, who we're so glad to have as a guest on the show today. I have been, Marcus, for a long time wanting to have this conversation with Chris. Chris and I have had the chance to kind of talk privately. Many people are going to recognize his name because he's been on the radio a lot. And uh, he I, I refer to I refer to Chris as one of the state's leading political gurus. He's the guy that we go to to find out what is going on. Now, it's interesting for both me and you that we don't see our show as a show about politics per se, but. The conversations that we have are political. They're political in mm-hmm. nature. So I think it's fitting that we we go just go right to the heart of mm-hmm. it. But again, we want to welcome Dr. Chris Cooper. And he is the Robert Lee Madison Distinguished Professor and Department Chair of Political Science and Public Affairs at Western Carolina University. And as you all know, he's a frequent guest on national radio and television shows, including All Things Considered. Morning Edition, CNN, and ABC News, just to name a few. But we're glad and honored to have Chris here with us today. Chris, we want to welcome you to the show. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Yes, welcome, thanks. Chris. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for putting on the show. I'm a I'm a, a longtime listener, first time uh, first time caller, I guess. Okay, right. <laughs> well, we've been wanting to have you on for a while, Chris. So tell us, you know, just tell us how you're doing. I know it, it, we we're all on Zoom here, so we can see each other. Yep. And it looks like you're sitting in your office, and I'm enjoying looking at the books that are in the background. <laughs> <All right. laughs> That's right. I'm I'm doing pretty well. I'm, I am in the office, and I'm looking forward to getting back to the stage where I can read more of those books as opposed to just looking at them. Uh, but uh, no, I'm doing well. It's uh, It's been a long election season, but a good one. And um, it will perhaps be over at some point and we can actually maybe, to maybe tie a bow on this thing and make some conclusions about what it all means. But um, but I'm doing well. Thanks. For yeah, well, Chris, tell me, how are things for you during a season like this? I imagine that it's extremely busy for you. And I know that you have a family as well. Do no. they get to see you much? Or are you just constantly on the road? And just just tell what does this, yeah. a political season look like for you? Yeah. You know, it's busy and uh, and I'm lucky my wife is uh, a kind and, and smart person, both kinder and smarter than me. She's uh, also a historian. So um, she kind of gets <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, she kind of gets what this is all about. Um, but, you know, I think it's good. I, I you know, I could sit here and, and poor mouth it and say all these, you know, horribly busy things. But the reality is I, I get to talk to smart people about politics um, for a lot of my day. And that's what I really enjoy doing. And, and so when I get to talk to a Matt Bush or, you know, I get to talk to, to other really smart reporters in the region or the state or the country, it, it sharpens my mind a lot. And, and, and I find that journalists and reporters obviously ask the best questions. And so mm-hmm. when it comes time to teach my classes and just have these bigger conversations about politics, I know what questions to ask. And so mm-hmm. I, I find it very, very helpful mm-hmm. to have these conversations with smart people about politics. Well, yeah. well, kudos to that historian, your historian <laughs> partner, your wife. You know, you know, I love that. <laughs> so we'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> 
And notice, Chris, Darren has no bias whatsoever in saying that. You know, he has no, no bias towards none. the film history. Of course not. You know, exactly he's he's right. completely neutral, right? <laughs> and, you know, Marcus, you, you have to let me say here, you know, Chris, I know that you know Dr. Dwight Mullen um, uh, from USC Actual. I finally got Dwight. Well, you know, he said it on his own. One day he just said, you know, politics, political science is the child of history. And it just came from out of nowhere. And I said, now, would you please repeat that again? <laughs> Marcus, I'm sorry. Well, I no, 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 no. I, I would expect no less. I would, I would expect no less. Well, well Chris, you know, I, I think, you know, this has been uh, obviously an historic election season. And I'm thinking, you know, for those who maybe, maybe this was the first time in, in their lives that they that they have voted. Um they're really beginning perhaps to become acquainted with how how consequential, how momentous, um, especially the general election season can be um, in this country. But um, my, my question is very sort of basic. Um, so it has to do with what, what sort of happens politically after an election season, in your opinion, um, from your perspective? Do things tend to sort of even out or, or settle, or do we see kind of an uptick um, in activity? You know, they tend to settle out, although I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if 2020 is different, right? And, and it, okay. you know, clearly we have a president of the United States who has not yet conceded the election. Um, we're all trying to read tea leaves in tweets that are then the tea leaves are obscured by the next tweet. So I, I wonder if this year is different. In general, yes, I think there is a moment where folks are able to come together a little bit more. I guess my big call to listeners would be um, that, there's already a move, right, to think about what's going to happen four years from now. Who's going to run for president? Mm -hmm. But we got a whole host of important issues to do with at the state level before then. Even if you're just interested in electoral politics, we have off-year elections, which can be critical. Um, so this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And for those people who are just getting involved in politics, which is a great thing, and I'm very glad to see this three in every four people turned out to vote in North Carolina, Um or three in every four registered voters. Mm -hmm. But um, we need to remember this is just one sort of stage one um, and it's going to be a give and take and it's going to be messy and politics is inherently messy. I love mm -hmm. that conversation y'all had at the beginning about what politics is. I'll throw in my favorite definition, which mm -hmm. is politics is about who gets what, when, where, and how. Uh, and I think that really describes what it is, right? I mean, it is a battle in some ways. Battle doesn't necessarily have to be a pejorative, mm -hmm. um, but it's a it's a battle over scarce resources. And those that can, of course, be money and, and who's getting the bigger uh, tax cut, but it can also be rights. It can also mm -hmm. be liberties. It can also be feelings of connectedness. Um, so I, I, I like a big, broad definition of politics that, that includes the inherent right. struggle. So, Chris, tell me, do you do you get a chance to take a breath? I mean, because we, I, I know I hear you on the radio a lot, I, you know, and you and I've talked about this and we turn to you because you're looking at the data, you're studying the data, you're looking at the numbers. Do things get to settle down? Because, I mean, you know, politics, 
you know, and this would be a larger conversation about how our society is really structured. So two years from now, we will have congressional races again. And so, but do you get to take a breath in the middle of this or is it constantly kind of going at a high, at a high speed for you? It seems like the volume's pretty high and it's pretty consistent. It won't be as high, obviously. The conversations will be fewer um, moving forward. Um, I'll be able to take some more time to write and to think kind of more I guess to use the term of the day, long form uh, mm-hmm. over the next uh, months once we settle in. But I'm, you know, frankly, I'm looking forward to some conversations about governing. I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to some conversations, particularly at the state level, about what we're going to do next. And so I'm, I'm already starting to think through, you know, what might happen in the next legislative session in North Carolina um, for all the the topics that we're talking about uh, that everybody's talking about, like Medicaid expansion. Um but I'll kind of hop in one and I'd be curious to get y'all's take on it. it, it mm-hmm. I think there's a symbolic action that our general assembly can take that could be critical to helping replace a little bit of trust in government. So in the state constitution in North Carolina, we still have a literacy test. Mm-hmm. We had the, uh, we've had three different constitutions in our state. And in 1971, we, uh, we got a new one and we put it up for a vote. And we said, hey, do you want this new constitution? And then we said, how about these changes? And one of them was to get rid of this literacy test. And North Carolinians voted against that. They voted to keep it. Now, of course, this is not enforced. It would be illegal to enforce it for good reason. Mm-hmm. But I would argue that a bipartisan stance that our General Assembly could take could be to, to get, rid get rid of this literacy test, to put it back up for a vote, to to do something that would try to move our state forward in a positive way. Yeah. yeah. And, and go ahead. Go ahead, Marcus. Yeah, no, I, no, you jump is, in. No, no. I mean this is this is um I that that really surprises me a little bit, uh, Chris. That, that, that this literacy literacy test is, is is still is still in place, and it really I, I think it, it raises questions about um, well number number one the history of the test, <laughs> right, and why on earth this test is still in place, given that um, you know at least at least nominally at least um, rhetorically, um, um, our state's politicians claim to be committed to um, democracy in its fullest expression. Um, but but I, again, I, I think this 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 bears directly on the questions that we posed at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Who are we, and who do we wish to be? Who are we, right? For instance, as as North Carolinians, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who is who, who who and what is our state legislature as a governing body? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If it allows this kind of test to to remain in place, and who does that, and how does that impact our identity as democratic sort of we's mm-hmm. who inhabit? Who inhabit this state? So, yeah, this is I I I, I think a troubling thing to consider, brother. Yeah, and, and even though, as you said, Chris, that it's not enforced, the fact, the mere fact that it's there says a lot. Yeah. And and I would be, and I'm sure that you probably know the numbers back in 1971 when we adopted this constitution of what was the, um, you know, what what did the data look like on the number of people who actually went out to vote for the adoption of this con- of, of this constitution? Were there some who felt disfranchised from, from that process? That it would be interesting to know the numbers on that. And then I can't help but think, Chris, about the number of ways, because voter suppression was a big issue in this, in this most recent election. And what we do to try to suppress votes, I, I heard a 
story of one woman um, in Georgia who uh, was 90 years old, who went to vote, and she's in her precinct, and the people clearly in the precinct knew who she was, so they were talking to her, you know, in a friendly conversation with her because they, she was their neighbor, but then proceeded to say, well, before you can vote, I need your ID. And but they knew who this person was. Right. So it's interesting, the little thing. So the thing that this 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 is still a part of the state constitution and the thing about all of these other ways that we attempt to suppress the vote. It seems to me that there's a connection there and that you that you're right that to at least take this symbolic step would make a would make a big statement. And I'm curious to find if if you brought this idea up with some of our leading politicians in the state, what has the response to this been? Has this question been called? You know, it's so some people have brought it up over the years. I have not um, had this conversation. I'm sort of thinking about trying to write an op ed um, about it. And this conversation is going to maybe spur me to, to move from possibly to doing it. Um, but it's been brought up a few times, it's been brought up by um, some state level political reporters. Uh, there's been a couple of times over the last 20 years where the General Assembly has kind of brought up the idea, but it's gone away pretty quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we could speculate about why that is and why it never caught traction. And certainly you can see people say, well, it's, you know, never really enforced, but who cares? Mm-hmm. You know, I would argue this is incredibly important, no less important than when the state of Alabama finally got rid of, um, uh, you know, they had bans against interracial marriage that of course mm-hmm. they didn't enforce, but they finally got rid of it for good reason. And I think we need to examine our governing documents, um, particularly at the state level, right? So we tend to think about, the federal constitution, we could talk about this as being the sacrosanct thing that we were less likely to want to change, but we're pretty good with changing our state constitutions, right? Mm-hmm. So Georgia, I think, got a new one in the 1980s, if you remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So I think we can actually bring a lot of political change and we can think about the way that we're governed and it doesn't have quite the stigma that changing the federal constitution does, does. nor frankly, is it quite as hard. Oh, right. So it's, it's, of course, this is an interesting conversation because I'm thinking about the word that comes to mind as I was listening to you and listening to Marcus is really engagement political engagement. Sure. How engaged are we? The one thing that in uh, in 2016, I, you know, I really felt, Chris, in teaching and, and especially being in a classroom and teaching constitutional history, I think I've been surprised at how little we know mm-hmm. about our own constitution at the federal level. Now, you're talking about at the state level, which is a much bigger document to kind of uh, to, to, to uh, wade yourself through. But I am I, I have been surprised by the lack of real understanding about what our constitutional rights are, what is in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And um, and it says a lot to me about um, about civics in this country and how civics is taught. Secondly, I felt in 2016 and Marcus and I were both having this conversation that we we had become somewhat apathetic as a, as a society that, okay, well, you know, politics is something that someone else does. It's off in Washington, you know, teaching American history, especially in the 20th century. And knowing that during the great depression, when eyes begin to really focus more on the federal level than it did at the state, but it had previously been the exact opposite that, that the federal government can seem so far away from us and that people become kind of disengaged from that. And I thought, well, if anything, 
maybe what occurred in 2016 could be such a disruption that it would bring people back into the process, maybe bring people back into the process. So we saw record numbers this time. Were you surprised by the turnout? And I'm curious from you, Marcus and I both have talked about this in private conversations, that is this the birth of something new, a new political engagement, or is this just a one-time thing that we're seeing? What do you expect to happen? Were you surprised by this turnout? Yeah, I I love that conversation. Um, I wasn't surprised that it was up. I am surprised how much it was up. So I think I actually had a conversation with with Matt Bush maybe a month ago, and and we were talking about how much it might go up over time. And and, and I think I said, you know, maybe – 5% or something. And as, as it spilled out of my mouth, I thought, Oh boy, maybe that was a little high. You know, wish I could have kind of had that one back. Turns out it was actually up a little bit more than that. So we did have this really extraordinary turnout. I think it's a really good thing for American politics. What's interesting if we grab North Carolina as an example is that all these inputs changed, right? So the number of people who voted, um, the way people voted changed, um, the outputs mm-hmm. were remarkably stable, right? So if you just take a snapshot of what North Carolina, as an example, looked like before this election, just just partisanship for a second, and then you take a snapshot of what it looked like afterwards, it's pretty much the same thing, right? We've barely voted for a Republican for president, barely voted for a Democrat for governor, council of states the same. The Republicans have a majority, but not a super majority in the General Assembly. On down the line, the proportion of women in office didn't change dramatically. I'm not quite sure about people of color in office yet in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Data is still getting firmed up. Um, So the inputs changed and the outputs didn't. Um, which is, I think, something for, for us to think through. I still think it's a good thing. Um, as to whether it will matter in the future, yes. I, my guess is it will be – the turnout will be high four years from now. I don't think it will be this high. Okay, um, okay. But the, all right, what's the number one way we can predict whether you're going to vote is did you vote last time? And that seems really simplistic. It is, but it's true. It's like – you know, the people that make their bed, why do you make your bed? I don't know. It's just the thing that I do every morning when I get up. Other people don't make their bed. Just it's a habit. And I think if we think of voting not as, you know, having this magic quality, but it's just a habit that you can be in or not be in, then I'm a little bit encouraged. And I'm hoping that the habit continues. Also, and I'll quit on my soapbox here. I hope that it is um, married with other kinds of political action. So there's a book that I encourage everybody to read called Politics is for Power by a political scientist named Eaton Hirsch. And he's actually written some things Mm -hmm. in the Atlantic that make a similar argument. But he Mm -hmm. says that what we've been hurt by in America is political hobbyism. So if you just get on 538.com and hit refresh, 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 and goodness knows I've been guilty of that very same thing. Right. But you're not really affecting policy. You're not really affecting politics. You're not really affecting who gets what, when, where, and how. You are doing the same thing you do if you care about if, you know, the Clemson game is on this weekend or not. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that this is, if not the birth of a new kind of democracy, at least gives us an opening for some refreshment. Yeah. And and, and Chris, you know, it's interesting, you know, sort of along that line to think about um, what this most recent election has disclosed regarding um, voting patterns. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, so I'm curious to sort of hear more about you or more from you um, about that. And and also along that, along with that, I'm thinking about 
um, what appears to be, and I, and I think that the that the results of this election kind of illustrate this, right? But this kind of rural urban divide, right? Um, I, I know that there are some, there were some pundits and others who were kind of um, predicting that uh, we would see sort of a landslide, right, inflate in favor of Biden, but that's not at all what we saw. Um, we not nowhere close. So, so anyhow, thoughts about that, about that, Chris, and why, and why that, and why these, these patterns may be significant. Yeah, no, great, great point. So, you know, I think we've seen, not I think, we have seen a massive increase in political polarization. This is the most polarized we've been since the Civil War. Um, and the urban-rural divide continues to grow. So if you, in the 2016 election, this will shock no one, The if you just grab North Carolina, the, the rural counties, of course, are more likely to go for Trump. Urban counties, more likely to go for Clinton. Suburban counties in the mm-hmm. middle. <laughs> Compare 2016 to 2020, the... Uh, the Democratic vote share grew in the urban areas, grew in the suburban areas, and shrunk in the rural areas. In other words, hmm. the rural areas actually move farther to the right. The urban and suburban move farther to the left. And the one that moved the most to the left was the urban counties, which were already the farthest on the left. So we are becoming... I, you know, I, I have argued and, and will continue to argue because I think the data supports it that we're a very purple state in North Carolina. The irony is that that doesn't mean that we have a hundred purple counties. That means we have a whole lot of red counties and then a very few blue counties which have more people in them, and then a very small number of swing counties um, that are left in the middle. And mm-hmm. so, even though we're a state that might seem like we could compromise. It's just that we kind of average to something that looks um, Mm. somewhat purple. And Mm. I think this has replaced, um, Darren, the historian will love me talking about this, right? So in the 1940s and the 50s, people talked about North Carolina politics as being defined by three regions, right? The West, the Mm -hmm. Piedmont, and the East. Mm -hmm. And I think today, the battle, the 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 fault line in North Carolina politics is between urban and rural. Urban and rural, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, less yeah. so between these regions. Right. Interesting, Chris. So, so for our listeners who are just joining us, we want to uh, just remind you this so that this is the Waters and Harvey Show. We're in a conversation with Dr. Chris Cooper, um, distinguished professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Affairs at Western Carolina University. I, I think we're having a very robust conversation here about. Uh, North Carolina politics, national politics, about issues of engagement. And as you could hear, Chris was just talking about, Marcus and Chris were just talking about the urban-rural divide. Now, now Chris, one of the things I'd like to ask about this so-called urban-rural divide, so many people are addressing this particular issue. Mm -hmm. I think over the past three years, the Institute for Emerging Issues has been doing this this conversation across the across the state about reconnect, reconnecting North Carolina and trying to reconnect the urban and rural spaces has been a part of that car- that conversation. So have we always been, has there always been something of a divide between urban mm-hmm. and rural areas? And secondly, as we become more diverse, Chris, I'm curious as how diverse is rural America? Is it a diverse mm-hmm. space? And um, and does that have some bearing on this this divide that that exists within within our country? Yeah, no, it's uh, 
great points again. So as far as have we always been this divided, I think we have, but, and this is a big but, I think it hasn't mattered for politics as much. And the reason is in the 60s and 70s and certainly before then, um, ideology, whether you're a liberal or conservative, and partisanship, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, weren't as united as they are today, right? So if I walk into my classroom and I say, hey, uh, I have his friend who's a liberal, what's his political party? They all go, he's a Democrat. I have his friend who's a conservative, what is her political party? She's a Republican. Mm -hmm. You couldn't do that in the 1970s. Certainly you couldn't do that in the South. And so what we've seen is this almost perfect sorting of liberals into the Democratic Party and conservatives into the Republican Party. And that has then aligned the rural and urban areas in stark contrast with each other. So if we do think about Western North Carolina, that was more Democratic, big D Democratic, meaning Democratic Party for a long time, certainly as you know, your dissertation talks about, um, uh, Darren. So yes, there was that Yes, it was democratic, but it wasn't the same kind of democrat as today. So, yes, we had divisions. The way life worked was different, but it, it didn't play out in the same way. I um, also think there was more of a, a rural, um, especially in North Carolina, rural areas created more um, of the dynasties in North Carolina politics. So, Rob Christensen, sort of the dean of North Carolina political reporters, um, has a book called The Rise of the Branch Head Boys. And it's all about how the political dynasty in North Carolina grew out of folks going to the, the heads of creeks in small towns throughout the state. Right. It didn't come out of Raleigh. It didn't come out of Charlotte. And so that shifted. Um, the second point I think you're making was about diversity. And this is where region may still matter. Right. So if we think about Western North Carolina rural areas, Look, it's it, it's not very diverse. It's not very heterogeneous. There's just there's no way to dress that up or to pretend it's something it's not. If you line up all of the congressional districts in North Carolina, the one that is to be blunt the whitest is the 11th congressional district, the farthest mm -hmm. western district. That's just an empirical fact. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, some of the eastern North Carolina rural areas are much more diverse. Um, and I think kind of the last wrinkle in this is diversity in the population doesn't always mean diversity in the electorate, particularly as we're seeing um, the increasing you know, numbers of Hispanics in the state of North Carolina um, who have much lower rates of voter registration. Sometimes that those more diverse parts of rural America aren't exercising their political voice. Okay. Okay. Much. Yeah. And, and I want Marcus is going to jump back in here, Chris, but there's just a thought that I had that I want to, I just want to throw it out. You don't have to respond to this because I think that this is something that we need that in a way, Marcus and I privately have been talking about this and needs to be understood. I really think, Chris, that there is a different, there is a diversity of thought within Black America itself mm -hmm. among African Americans. And I think in some sense, you can detect that, um, that there is a rural, almost a rural urban distinction among people of color as well. And that's not something that I hear us talking about enough, but I think that we need to talk about that at some point. But I'm just throwing it out there as, as a thought that I've had about this. Yeah, and, and just quickly kind of on, 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 you know, following up on that there. And I think that, that, that part of the reason that, 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 that political heterogeneity within the African-American community doesn't, doesn't get discussed is that there's this, this master narrative, this, this, this idea out there that, most African-Americans um, essentially are liberal Democrats, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And that there isn't 
um, uh, much of a vigorous political debate going on within that context. So your point is your point is well taken um, um, there. So, so Chris, I, I think part, part, I think what what I hear you saying is that this this rural urban divide isn't new. Um, that there are that there are historical antecedents for it. Uh, my question then would be, um, what you know, given the present moment, uh, given the fact that you know, as you just pointed out um, a, a few moments ago. Uh, we are now more politically divided than we were. We're, we're more divided now than we've been since the Civil War, which is just a staggering thing to consider. Um, what can we learn? I mean, what is there anything to be learned from this persistent rural-urban divide, which has these historical antecedents? Um, and, and if so, what is it that we can be learned that, that can be learned, and how perhaps might this help us um, negotiate uh, this present political moment? Yeah, and then Chris, I have to say, I'm deeply interested in Marcus's question, given our efforts to really talk about community. What does it mean to be in community? And I think that Marcus's question goes right to the heart of that conversation as well. So, yeah, no, I think there's a whole lot we can learn. Um, I don't know. I don't have a, a ton. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, not necessarily uh, put a lot of light on it. I don't know that I'm going to come out of this with any sort of, here's the solution mm -hmm. to the problem. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a lot of things we can learn. I think if we look at the, our structures of government, we can see the urban rural divide, right? This conversation that we're just now beginning, well, we're not beginning, but it is getting more attention lately about the United States Senate and how we're overrepresenting rural states at the expense of urban states, mm -hmm. what that means for representation of various groups, right? The fact that Wyoming with I believe less than a million people has the same U.S. Senate representation as the state of California with, I don't know, a heck of a lot of people. Right. It raises all sorts of questions if you right. believe in one person, one vote. Mm -hmm. The Electoral College, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, reinforces these urban-rural divides. So I think one thing we can learn is the ways in which our political structures reinforce this division that already exists. And I think this kind of returns to something we were talking about a few minutes ago with our state constitution, but our federal constitution as well. I think it's incumbent on us to examine these institutions and try to figure out the institutions that align us towards a sense of community and compromise in those that work against it. And I would mm -hmm. argue that a lot of our institutions reinforce this urban rural divide. Mm -hmm. um, the way we talk about it, and certainly I, I, even the way I talk about it sometimes, I think reinforces some of these divisions. Um, really smart paper just came out. Folks might have seen it because it got shared some on social media where they did an experiment and they showed people the old red blue maps that we're all familiar with from election night. Mm -hmm, and they mm -hmm. found out that that reinforces the idea that America is fine, right? Right. right? North Carolina is going to look red on all those because we voted for Donald Trump. That's a mm -hmm. fact. We did. Yeah. But I think when you line up the numbers in the end, and we'll see, all the votes aren't quite counted yet. I think we're going to have Trump will have the smallest margin in North Carolina of any state that he won. Mm -hmm. So is it more accurate to portray us with? Wyoming, or is it more accurate to portray us with Georgia? And I guarantee that our vote share will be closer to Georgia than to Wyoming. Yeah. So I think thinking about the ways we we have these conversations, thinking about the structures that we have, um, and and being aware of uh, of some of the things that may run counter to those narratives. Like you guys did a great job talking about it in a much better way than I can about the oversimplification of the african-american vote i would add to that the oversimplification of the latino vote um mm -hmm. 
my friend and colleague uh, is a historian. I hate to keep saying good things about historians, but, uh, <laughs> but Ben Francis is loving this. I know, I know. Ben Francis Fallon at Western Carolina has a book called The Latino Vote, where he talks about the, the political construction of the Latino vote as a singular idea, even though it is very much not a singular mm. um, idea or action. So I think being aware of those conversations and being aware of <laughs> no, it's a, Chris, this is interesting for me because you know complexity, you know, you yeah. you sort of simplification. And and I just as a historian, I know that Americans, and again, I'm gonna rest on Alexis de Tocqueville here again, that one of the things that I see at the heart of his work is he said Americans run away from complexity. We want mm. things boiled down into simple things. Simplicity is what we want. And, you know, nothing that's going to stop us from continuing to move ahead to wherever it is, wherever it is that we're, we say that we're going. But we don't like complexity. But I'm hearing hearing that there is a lot that is extremely complex here. And we need to have a conversation and understand that. Marcus, God, yeah, see and you. No, yeah. no. And just just a really quick follow up, because I, I, I was curious about the point that you made, um, Chris, about how our political institutions and structures reinforce this division. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about that um, in conjunction with Darren's point from the Tocqueville that Americans run away from, from complexity. And so my question to you, um, Chris, um, if, if you don't mind this, do you think that that the reinforcement of those divisions at the structural level is intentional? Or is this something that is more sort of, I don't want to say, I guess, accidental or incidental, um, you know, just given sort of how how the structures themselves are constructed, designed, implemented. So so any thoughts you might have about that would be would be interesting. <laughs> Deep question, because, Chris, I would say here, too, because I think that the media plays a role in this. Yeah. That mm-hmm. the media reinforces it, too. So go ahead. I'm sorry. You're absolutely right. And I'll, I'll get in a historian knock. We keep talking about Tokel, right, who mm-hmm. I would argue Marcus is more of a political philosopher than a historian. Okay. <laughs> is it intentional? You know, and so I obviously look, the, the our entire institution of government is set up based on people's inherent selfishness. If men were angels, mm. no government would be necessary, right? That's that's mm. it's not not a phrase I'm making up. Yeah. Um, so, Federalist. Right, right. Right. papers, and and so I would, you know, which I would argue is, you know, if you got to read one thing in American politics and one thing only, I'd read the Federalist Papers. Right, right. So I think we we entered into this as selfish, fallible people, Um, and I think we came up with a whole lot of compromise uh, based on neither one of none of the groups being represented being totally frozen out. Now, of course, the problem here is there were all sorts of groups that weren't at the table at the first place. So if it's a compromise mm-hmm, between mm-hmm. group A and group B, um, let's just cut through it, right? We're talking about white male property owners versus other white male property owners. Um, and we created a system of government to make sure that both of those groups of people could be uh, could agree, uh, taking into account none of the other people that the majority, frankly, of the people who lived in our country at the time. So I think the ways it's manifested itself were probably not intentional, but uh, that is not to say that I think we created this, all these institutions with pure hearts, because I don't think that's realistic. Um, and I don't think that's possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Frankly. Right. Um, 
Yeah. Very good point. So, Chris, I, I, I want to do this before we move on, because there's a question that we have to address before we yeah. end the show. And time has been moving so quickly here. But I'd like to ask you right here as we're recording this show on the air. Can we get you to commit to coming back for another conversation? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because we're just not getting through all of the things that Marcus and I knew we wanted to address here. I'm giving but, long answers. OK, no, no. This is just a robust conversation. And, and I hope the audience is, in, is enjoying it as much as I really am. And one of the big questions that I w- wanted to bring up, it, we're talking about divisions. I'm curious to hear from you. First of all, what is identity politics? We hear a lot about identity politics. And to what degree is identity politics, if it is a real thing, um, how is it contributing to the divisions that we that we see in our state, in our communities, in, in across the nation? Yeah, it's it's so yes, I think identity politics is a real thing, but I don't think it is as this for wrapping it's not one thing by itself, right? There's all of us are have multiple identities, right? Mm-hmm. So um I am uh, a southerner, I'm a North Carolinian, I'm an Appalachian, I'm a Packers fan. Um, You know, you've got all sorts of identities that you have wrapped up. And I think sometimes this conversation about identity politics assumes that we are one thing completely or the other, not that Mm -hmm. we're all a package of various identities. And so I would offer something I've written about a little bit is Southern identity. Mm -hmm. But uh, there was a view for a very long time that Southern identity was was a white thing. So if you ask people, what does it mean to be Southern? They'd say, oh, you know, the the Confederate flag and Dukes of Hazard, and, and these very, very white traits. Turns out African-Americans are maybe slightly more likely to identify as Southerners than whites are who live in the South, right? So identity can cut all sorts of different ways. And I think we sometimes treat it as if identity politics is just about, it's only about race or it's only about, you know, some other gender perhaps. Um, but it's a whole package of things that we all have together. Partisan identity, I think, politics has become a bigger problem. I think there's good things you can pull out of a lot of these other identities, Mm -hmm. but I do worry that the more being a Democrat or Republican resembles being a Bears fan or a Packers fan um, or a Tar Heels fan or um, a Blue Devils fan, which hurts me to even say, right. um, then I think the worst off we are, right? Because those aren't conversations about policy. Those are conversations about my team and your team and winning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and that makes it hard to get to a we. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Marcus, jump in here. Yeah, definitely. And I'm, I'm, I'm also, I'm kind of reminded of a, there's a scholar named Joshua Gamson who, who wrote a piece about entitled something like I think it's a must identity politics self destruct or something of that nature. And, and part of the point that he's making in that article is that, um, in in the American political sphere, really in order for a group to gain visibility, right, um, politically. There has to sort of the, the group has to present itself with a sort of coherent identity, yes. whether it's um, a race identity, whether it's gender, you know, whatever um, it may be. But but the the danger there, though, he points out, is that it really it it, it erases that complexity, right? It mm-hmm. kind of erases heterogeneity. So there's this sort of th- this this tension that 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 identity politics sort of sort of lives in. But um, but a question I have for you, uh, Chris, kind of following up is. 
it, it seems to me that that identity politics was very much to the fore in this election, um, maybe in a way that we haven't seen in 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 in, in quite some time. And that raises the, the question for me of of how much of an impact do you see identity politics exerting um, on 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 the sort of broader American political process. I mean, is that is identity politics really at this point in American political history the sort of um, uh, the most sort of prominent fa- um, um, influential factor, um, or is something else sort of competing with it um, at yeah. that level? I think it is increasing in importance um, in some ways that aren't good, um, and I think it is yes the most important fact really in determining people's vote choice um and and i think there's tons of literature uh to suggest that this is true right there's there's folks of course who talk about shared identity amongst african americans or latinos but there's also some literature about whites sharing identity and some of the perverse consequences that has um about um of course gender identity being you know increasingly important Mm -hmm. um but as we kind of move down this road, which I think is an important conversation, I want to be real clear that I'm distinguishing identity from representation. And so here's what I mean by that. Even though I think there are some problems with partisan identity politics driving everything, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have um, uh, pay attention to who is representing us in government, right? The idea that um, we should have a government that looks more descriptively like America in general. You can hold that idea and still critique in some ways identity politics. No. Well, Chris, this I think this is a good place to end this conversation, but this is not over. Um, this has just been a very robust conversation. Marcus and I want to thank you again for joining us today. And I mean, there's so much more for us to dig into here. And as we kind of kind of come to the end of the show and then thanking you for being here, you know, uh, I'm sure that you reach George, George Packer as well. George, George Packer is such a good writer. A lot of his essays in The Atlantic, you can get his material there. But uh, just a few days ago, I did read his essay that was in that last month's issue, the October issue of The Atlantic called Make America Again. And he referenced a report that has been written called Our Common purpose. Mm-hmm. And I'm I haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but it has a number of, of bold proposals in it about how we continue to renew and reinvigorate our democracy. And I, you know, I think it's worth maybe another conversation that's coming to Marcus and I had also put in in our notes here to want to reference uh, you know, who is it, Thomas Friedman's Thomas Friedman, essay. Yeah. yeah, his essay on uh the politics of of humiliation and um who can win the American politics of humiliation. And I would love to come back to that and talk oh, yeah. to you about that's that. A big one. <laughs> yeah. And he recently had an essay in the New York Times, well, an op-ed in the New York Times called Only Truth Can Save Our Democracy. And I found that that, that particular op-ed interesting because we're in the postmodern world and the postmodern world is that truth is, you know, questionable, right? Mm-hmm. So I really what I'm hearing here is that there are deep philosophical questions that have to be addressed here and, and we need to continue to have that conversation, Marcus. Yeah, absolutely. And I, again, I'm, I'm, I, I continue to be haunted, well, not haunted, but to sort of latch on to Chris's definition of politics, who gets what, You're when, right. where and how. Mm-hmm. And, and there's so many issues that are right 
at the core of that question, right? Um, Identity, a host of other issues. And so, yeah, I I think that one takeaway for me is um, the question of of who are we and who do we wish to be? Um, Both those questions have to be in conversation with who gets what, (laughs) when, where, and how all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And brilliant, brother, on how you ended that by raising those questions again. Marcus and I want to thank you all for joining us. And we want to remind you again that the Watterson Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, on the BPR mobile app and on on, um, Apple Play and Google Play. Follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter. And Marcus and I are going to look forward to talking to you again. And we got to bring we're going to bring Dr. Cooper back. Great conversation. 